All right, guys, I've got a, a hero, a scientific hero of mine, uh, Jerry Coyne. Uh, let me first introduce him and then I'll give, I'll seed way for him to, to speak. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago Department of Ecology and Evolution. Well over 20,000 citations on Google Scholar. He's got a very popular blog, Why Evolution is True. You should definitely check it out. And then he's got three books, two of which we'll probably talk about today, Speciation, Why Evolution is True, and Faith versus Fact, Why Science and Religion are Incompatible. How are you doing, Jerry? Fine, yourself. It's so nice to, to finally sit down together. I know that you were in Montreal recently. We didn't get a chance to meet, but at least we, we e-meet. So yeah. there, there you go. I thought we would probably start with uh, maybe our only point of contention, because I think we're probably going to agree on most things. Not that that means that it won't be a fun conversation. Uh, apparently, you are a committed cat person, while I am a committed dog person. What I'd like to do is maybe try to tease out some of these issues by first telling you about a study that came out a few years ago on personality differences between dogs and cats, and then ask you to weigh in on the topic. So this comes from a paper by Goslin, Sandy, and Potter. In their abstract, they say that dog people are higher on extroversion, agreeableness, and conscientiousness but lower on neuroticism and openness. What are your thoughts on that study? Uh, well, you know, I haven't read it. I'm dubious of a lot of psychological studies. If it had been replicated, <laughs> you know the replicability problem in psychology, sure. of course. Some of the most famous results, like about free will, which we might talk about later, and, and psychology have been overturned in subsequent work. So I'm not sure about that. I can't really comment on the study. I'll just say I feel sorry for your penchant for dogs. <laughs> um, now, why is that? What, what's, what's my own theory, which, of course, is not substantiated by any scientific research about differences between cat and dog people, which are basically this. You're going to disagree on this, of course. But I think dog people require unconditional love because that's what dogs do. They're always wagging their tails, and unless you beat them or treat them horribly, they're going to you know, come and lick you and jump in your leg and even sometimes try to copulate with you. Whereas, you know, to me, that's not the way a person behaves. If you're in a relationship with another human being, sometimes they're going to be loving, sometimes they're going to be different or depressed or have their own problems. And that's what cats are like. You know, most of the time they are on their own. Uh, maybe that's why extroverts are dog people, because they require that social interaction. But, you know, cats, to me, are more like human beings. And if you get the love of a cat, you've really earned it, you know. Whereas a dog will love you no matter what, how much of a schmuck you are, as long as you give him food and take him for walks and stuff. Let me try to rebut this. So, okay. so dogs, of course, we can list, you know, they're, they're, they can detect cancer, they can protect. They can find you in avalanches. They herd for you. They, they're military dogs. They're epilepsy signaling dogs. All sorts of things they do for you. But if we couch it in the language of evolutionary theory, they actually instantiate reciprocity, right? For only your kindness, your love, and throw some food at them, they will reciprocate in an infinite number of ways. Whereas cats, dare I say, I hope I haven't, I'm not forming an enemy in Professor Coyne here, are parasitic. Yeah, more or less. I mean, this is the point that Malcolm Gladwell made <laughs> I right? you, when we had our cats versus dog debate in, in the New Yorker, which, by the way, the dog people won because they had this shady trick of putting <laughs> Sandy, the Broadway dog, from Annie on the stage, um, which, of course, caused instant 
you know, love from everybody. The problem with what you said is, yes, it's true. Cats don't reciprocate, um, but neither do children, right? I mean, the reason we love our children is because they, we, they, you know, they have our genes and they're going to pass them on. But how, how often does a cat really reciprocate? Right. I mean, a child really reciprocate your affection. What they do is they just slag you off when they become teenagers and reject you. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe if you're dying or something, they'll take care of you, which I suppose is useful to you, but not in reproductive sense. You know, it's interesting that you say this because I have, we have, my wife and I have young children and I'm actually... I live daily with the sort of mortified possibility that they will be reaching teenagehood where they will no longer view us as the end all love that they currently exhibit for us. So I can, I truly, I'm already predicting that it's going to be a, a rough transitory period for me when they hit that age. Uh, but what, what do you think about some of the theories that might explain, evolutionary theories that might explain our penchant, whether it be for cats or dogs? So I'll, I'll share one with you. And then I will solicit your, your opinion on it. So John Archer, who's a evolutionary psychologist out of Britain, argues that uh, dogs and cats really parasitize our parental instinct in, in several ways. One of which is by, for example, having these neotenous, you know, juvenile-like features, which, of course, we, in a sense, if we use the language of ethology, we have a sort of a fixed action pattern to respond to these stimuli. Do you, do, you, do you buy that? Is it as simple as that, or is it a more complicated story? Well, you know, for some, a theory like that in evolutionary psychology, it's really hard. I mean, it's it sounds plausible. Right. But is it the truth? Who knows? Um, I'm not sure. If that was the case, we would have certainly bred cats and dogs to be more neotenic, to look more like kittens and puppies, you know. But the kittens and puppies look like kittens and puppies regardless of human right. breeding. So... You know, why do we have greyhounds? Why do we have Siamese cats? Those dogs and cats are nothing like, you know, um, human babies in appearance or even their juveniles in appearance. I, but I think there's a, a grain of truth in that in, insofar as they appeal to our instincts to take care of something that gives us affection. And that may be the same, you know, motivation for having children. For me, I don't have any kids, and right now I don't have a cat, sadly, but, you know, it's a lot easier to have pets than it is to have children. For one thing, they don't reject you when they become 13 years old. <laughs> true, true. In Arabic, there's an expression when you reach the age, the teenage years, uh, which when loosely, tra well, not, when actually literally translated into English means the age of obnoxiousness. Uh, yeah. because, it really, because it really refers to the fact that as teenagers hit that stage, it almost becomes difficult to bear them. And so it's a, it'll, it will be a challenge in a few years. But to come back to your point on neoteny, I'm sure you're familiar with the studies. I can't remember the, the Russian scientist uh, who was breeding uh, the, I think, gray uh, foxes. And as he was selectively breeding for docility, there was a pleiotropic effect that actually some of their phenotypic traits became more neotenous, right? And so yeah. that's how we can potentially explain how we went from the wolf that looks more ominous to the more neotenous-looking domesticated dog, no? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that study. Um, I always wonder if there wasn't some unconscious selection going on for appearance as well as the study. I've always I've tried to get hold of that study, but it's in Russian. Uh, so if you read these, you know, very short praises of it and... I'm a bit dubious about that, simply because, you know, it's not clear to me why a behavioral trait should be pleiotropic with a phenotypic trait. Right, it's right. not common in genetics to see that. So I might be right. I just 
have no idea. Um, but of course, I am familiar with the the Stephen Jay Gould study on Mickey Mouse. Where yes, right. The first Mickey Mouse, um, he's he's very rat-like, you know. And then as as Disney Studios went on, he became more and more neotenic to the point where he was more or less like a teddy bear with right. a short face and big eyes. And yeah, exactly. Actually, that that exact argument has been made with the teddy bear. Also, you're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's move on to. Uh, you know, I love whenever I have uh, an evolutionist on, I love to ask them as one of the sort of the first questions, uh, what was their evolutionary epiphany, right? So most of us, certainly in evolutionary psychology, could literally point to the exact genesis of what led us to say, God damn, this is an incredibly powerful explanatory framework, and I've been bitten by the evolutionary bug. In my case, I'll, I'll very quickly share it, and then I'll ask you for yours. Uh, at first semester as a doctoral student, we were assigned a book by two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology, a book called Homicide by Daly and Wilson, where they looked at patterns of criminality across uh, cultures, across time, and then used some very elegant evolutionary explanations to, ex to explain these patterns of criminality. And that, to me, was sort of my evolutionary epiphany. Do you have a similar story to share from your days as a student? Uh, actually, two stories, because I'm an evolutionary genetic, so this will be short. I have one in evolution <laughs> and one in genetics, and they go together, sort of. So the evolutionary epiphany was when I walked into my very first college class, which was 8 a.m. on Monday, the first year in college, which for me is the uncomfortably distant year of 1967. <laughs> um, but our the introductory zoology course, because we had zoology one semester in botany the other that's the way the field was divided up back then no longer um evolution the first lecture was given by an evolutionary biologist at william and mary jack brooks and he was very charismatic and very very promoting of evolution and his excitement simply communicated itself to me I, at that point i didn't yet know what i wanted to do but i had gone to college thinking like all biologists that i was going to be a marine biologist we all have visions of standing on the deck of a ship and chasing whales and all miss americas also they always seem to either want to solve peace or become marine biologists no <laughs> i think that's true but that was dispelled pretty quickly um but then i sort of knew i wanted to study evolution and then the professor because i did so well in his class got me the ability to take genetics um, in my second year instead of in my third year, which was the curriculum. And that's the moment where I realized I wanted to do evolution, I wanted to do genetics. And what happened was that we had a um, lab exercise where we had to identify an unknown mutation. And it, had, it was a fly, Drosophila melanogaster. I've always worked with Drosophila, <coughs> excuse me, that had white eyes. And then we got the normal fly, it had red eyes. And we had to figure out, okay, what's the genetic difference between those two? So I crossed them together and you get flies that all had all red eyes, so something was dominant genetically. But then when I intercross those offspring, you get four eye colors, you know, normal dark red, white, and then you got two new colors, bright crimson and brown. So instead of getting the two colors back again, which is normal when you have a single gene difference, I got four. I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. I remember the very moment I did, I was in swimming class. We had required phys ed then. I suddenly thought, well, you know, what if there's two genes, not just one, that are different, and one of them makes brown pigment, and one of them makes red pigment, and if you, they, and there's an activation of both of those in the white flies, but in the back crust you get ones with the brown pigment inactivated, but the red one's still there, so they're bright red, the other one with the red pigment inactivated, and the brown one, okay, and they're brown. 
And I thought, well, that would make sense. And I went back to the lab after class to begin during the crosses to try to figure that out. And damn if it wasn't the case. Wow. We had two linked genes. I called them like tangerine and crimson. I later found out they're two classic genes, uh, um, brown and uh, I can't remember the name of the other one, vermilion. And that they're on the same chromosome, and I figured out there's two genes and how far apart they are and which chromosome they are. And the results were just so clean, so clean cut. Not the kind of results you get in much of evolutionary biology where it's, well, maybe this is the case, or this is strong evidence point. This was unequivocal. And from that day on, I've not only wanted to be an evolutionary geneticist, but I've tried to do the kinds of experiments where the results are pretty much unequivocal. Um, and so, you know, it was from that moment on at the swimming pool that I, you know, my career has been straight line evolutionary genetics. And so was that finding, did that lead downstream to your first publication? Was that, was that part of your first publication? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. I mean, I didn't get into this kind of uh, Mendelian analysis of uh, traits until I got to graduate school okay. with Glunton. But So my first publication, actually the only one I have that's not on fruit flies, was on... Um, uh, hydroids, um, you know, salinerates, jellyfish, uh, freshwater ones, and that was something I did as a project in my invertebrate biology class, and I wound up in my first publication in <laughs> the journal Chesapeake Science, which isn't exactly a world beater, but I was so proud to have a paper with my name on it that I carried it around in my back pocket for like weeks. <laughs> well, my, my first publication was a paper uh, that was published in a conference proceedings uh, that started off as a project in a, in a course. Uh, and then I would build on that project. So in a sense, a similar story. Uh, and that's what I try to tell my students when they're uh, in my classes. I always have this research project where, you know, they have to posit a, you know, identify a research question, posit some hypotheses, collect the data. And I always tell them, you know, don't think of this as only, you know, trying to uh, meet the requirements of this course. You know, if, if this is done truly according to the standards that would be required for a scientific publication, maybe eventually downstream this could go on to be published. And I've had several of my students who've published papers with me that started off in coursework. So there you go. That's great. Yeah. Never underestimate the influence of a charismatic and competent teacher. That's another thing I learned from all this. My life would be completely different if I had met the uh, mentors that I've had. So. Well, actually, that's going to be my next question. So now fast forward from your undergraduate days. So now mm. you're at Harvard, you're with Lewington. And as I sort of went through your bio, I, I, you know, a light bulb went in my head. I mean, you were in the thick of sort of the culture war, the wars between E.O. Wilson and the Lewington slash Gould gang. Uh, do you have any exciting, juicy stories that we might not have heard of from those days that you'd like to share with us? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was those were the really tumultuous times. Those were the times when E.O. Wilson got the pitcher of water dumped yeah, yeah, exactly. by science and people. And, you know, I was... I was caught in a dilemma because, I, first of all, Ed Wilson got me into Harvard. I had been accepted in another school. Lewinton had moved to Harvard but forgot to tell me. And so I had to get into Harvard in like a week, you know, because I'd just come back from Europe. And I went to Harvard, and Ed met me. He looked at my CV, and he set up appointments with me with all the other professors. And damn if I didn't get in. But, and then I was teaching for him for two years at Harvard in Bio 1, his famous introductory biology course. I really liked Ed, and I still like Ed. But my mentor was Richard Lewinton, who happened to be on the same floor as Dick Levins, who was another member of Science to the People. 
and the situation was pretty uncomfortable because I was friends with Ed and with a lot of his students, and yet I was in a lab in which the especially for Richard Levins, who was a diehard communist anti-evolutionary psychologist called sociobiology at that time. And so it was a bit uncomfortable. Um, at that time, there, there wasn't really a definitive body of research in evolutionary psychology. So the criticisms that Lewinton and Gould made of, of things that Wilson said about humans, for example, that no matter how much equality women were given, they would never achieve parity in the business place. I mean, and Ed did say that in the New York Times, and I thought that was pretty reprehensible. On the other hand, yet I read his book, Sociobiology, and thought, you know, this is good stuff. I mean, this is novel. And I thought, well, you know, why shouldn't this apply to human beings? We're, after all, evolved organisms like anything else. And so, you know, I was kind of torn between these two poles. I didn't really come down on the Wilsonian side, I hate to admit this, recognizing the value of evolutionary psychology until enough studies had accumulated that I realized that there is a substantive scientific basis here, not only in theory, but in result that makes it a credible right. enterprise. But geez, it, you know, I once got in the I once got in the elevator on the first floor. Ed worked on the fourth floor, Dick on the third with me, and these two guys were in the elevator with me and the atmosphere was just so so chilling. I mean these guys would not even acknowledge each other's existence or say hello or anything like this. And it's odd because Ed actually brought Dick to Harvard. Wow. Their their rupture didn't occur until much later when you know, Lewinton became more politicized and Ed put out sociobiology. Now, did E.O. E. Wilson, I mean, understand that a lot of the animus was, I mean, I'm sure he understood that it was driven by their 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 political ideology, right? I mean, it's not so much that they had a, a scientific, you know, a methodological or epistemological problem with sociobiology. It's that it didn't fit with their ideological narrative, correct? Yeah, I think Ed actually wrote that in his book, Naturalist. Yeah. It paints a, a pretty realistic word picture of what it was like to be on the faculty with Dick Lewinton. In fact, his, to, <coughs> excuse me, his description of Lewinton's hand-waving and stuff is, is the most accurate description I've ever seen. But yeah, Ed must have recognized that because, if for nothing else, Lewinton, Gould, and Levins attacked only the human aspect. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, that... I'm sorry, but I was just saying they didn't very much go after um, other aspects of sociobiology, like the animal work. Yeah, well, I mean that. I mean, I guess I was going to talk about this later, but it's a good place to talk about it now. So you take somebody. I think we both probably, I, I dare say, dislike him. PZ, uh, you would say PZ. We say in Canada Z. PZ Myers, uh, who's a developmental biologist, I guess, uh, not terribly known as a scientist, but certainly as somebody who who has a very very popular. Uh, science blog, and he's one of the types of guys that is perfectly willing to accept uh, an evolutionary explanation if it applies to, say, the mating behavior of the salamander. But if we take the exact same set of explanations, I mean, with the exact same, I mean, you you literally just replace the word salamander with human, suddenly it becomes just so storytelling, and so so that's a really unique creature. An evolutionary trained scientist who perfectly accepts evolutionary explanations, but only as long as they don't apply to human affairs, right? 
Yeah, in terms of behavior, that's correct. And why behavior is put separate from other traits of organisms always defies me. But I would take issue with the fact that it's it's unique creature. I mean, Myers is perfectly in the tradition of Levens and Lewington yeah, and Gold in you know rejecting any kind of evolutionary influence on right. in human behavior. I take great issue with that, and it's so clear in the case of Myers as it is for Wilson. I mean, sorry, for Lewinton and Levin's and Gould, that it's all ideologically based. They have no beef with the stuff applied to other organisms, even behavior. Right, and, no, exactly right. And, and incidentally, as somebody who, you know, has been working for, you know, two decades trying to Darwinize uh, generally the business school, but in particular consumer behavior, uh, the amount of blowback that I've received, it's a lot less now because, of course, the evidence is certainly coming in Dare I say that I was correct, uh, that humans are biological beings, that consumers are compelled by biological and evolutionary forces. But for many, many years, you know, I was pretty much the lone voice at that nexus. And the, the creatures in those cases that used to sort of fight me were not of the type of Myers and Lewinton, but they were also ideologically driven. So, for example, you had the radical feminists or the postmodernists or the social constructivists. Uh, all of whom agreed that there was something unique about humans that somehow they transcended their biology, right? Uh, this is called the human reticence effect, right? Uh, biology is relevant for the mosquito, for the, for the zebra, for the giraffe, but it is not relevant for humans. It's astonishing. Yeah, I find it odd because the same people, as you noted, are, I mean, not just are willing to admit behavioral evolution in animals, but morphological evolution in human beings. Yes, exactly. So, for example, we have vestigial wisdom teeth. We have vestigial appendices. We have vestigial ear muscles. I'm wiggling them now. You know, why shouldn't we have vestigial behaviors or even behaviors that are still adaptive to us? It's somehow that the evolution of this mass of neurons in our head is exempt. And that's a, it's a physical trait and a physiological trait. Why is that exempt from the same kind of evolution that afflicts the rest of our body? And, you know, you know the reason for this ideological thing. It's the fear of the naturalistic fallacy. It's that if humans, for example, if males are, you know, thought to be dominant over females or to be aggressive more than females or something like that, that that's going to point out to some irreparable dichotomy between the sexes that's going to lead to sexism. That's why feminists, for example, resist you know, evolutionary psychology in the same way that leftists do, right. because they fear that it's going to somehow justify racism and sexism and stuff. Whereas, you know, as scientists, we know that we have to accept our biology, but it doesn't mean that we have to make it into law or make it into, you know, social mores or anything like that. And ultimately, if you want to understand the most reprehensible, reprehensible realities of, of, of human affairs, whether it be uh, child abuse or rape, uh, ultimately you want to root any eventual downstream public policy interventions in a real understanding of the phenomenon, right? And so to understand the phenomenon in no way implies that you are condoning it, justifying it, uh, placing a moral value on its existence. But as you exactly said, it's almost impenetrable to people who, you know, succumb to this fallacy. If you explain that here's the reason why people might have a hard time uh, being true to their monogamous unions. Oh, you bastard. You're justifying infidelity, right? Yeah. On the other hand, this has been pointed out, I think, by both Lynchon and Steve Pinker. And maybe you can give me your take on this, that, that there are some questions that you have a purely intellectual interest in, perhaps 
that are invidious that might not be worth pursuing because they're bad social ramifications. One of those could be, for example, do the different biological races. And of course, a lot of people right. don't know that those races exist. But they differ in IQ. I mean, you know, you could take that as a purely intellectual question, just like do they differ in athletic ability? And there are books on that, of course. And, you know, the question is, are those kinds of studies worth doing in light of the possible, you know, invidious outcomes? Um, uh, well, you know, my, my thinking, if I'm, I'm as a true purist, I would say the pursuit of truth should be, you know, completely dogged and should not be restrained by any such concerns. Uh, now, maybe that's too much of a purist bubble, but the reality is that that's exactly the argument that people used to remove, to eradicate biology from human affairs, right? What if the eugenicists misused the theories? Look at the Nazis, what they did. Look what the British social class elitists did. So it's a very slippery slope to say, look, there is some information that is too dangerous to know. It's forbidden, uh, lest somebody might misuse it. So I would say no. As long as you're, you're doing honest science that is not ideological-based, then let the truth take you where it takes you. I don't care. Yeah, I agree. It's just that if you have a limited part of money to allocate to different questions, what do you do with those questions? I think I tend to agree with you in general. I've, I think it was actually Steve that convinced me that we're always better off knowing what's true. We're never better off not knowing what's true or deliberately avoiding areas of investigation. And you know, I think I generally agree with you, but I have you know, run this question through my mind. So, right. so. Right. so let's get into... Uh, each of your two books, sort of the, the broad issue. Let's start. I mean, I know you've got speciation, which we, if you, I'd be happy to talk about. But the well, more, that's technical. That's tech, exactly. Uh, although we could certainly, uh, you know, popularize the the, the key points. Uh, but let, so let's talk about the two thousand nine book. Uh, you know, where you sort of systematically lay out all of the uh, evidence, the, the the evidence that's coming from many different disciplines, many different traditions that all, all point to the fact that, of course, evolution is an incontrovertible uh, reality. And then I'm going to link what you're going to discuss to the epistemology of evolutionary psychology. But, but why don't you give us sort of a quick summary of your key argument in that book? Well, the key argument basically is encompassed in the title, Evolution is True. In <laughs> fact, my publishers gave me a little bit of flack on that because they thought it was a very strong title. Not that they didn't accept evolution, but they thought it would alienate people. Um, the book grew out of my own first attempts to teach evolution on the introductory level, which I've done for, you know, over 35 years before I retired. And I realized that I'm trying to do that in a country where 42% of the people of the inhabitants are young earth creationists. So I figured, okay, if I'm going to do my job as a professor, the first thing I have to do is give the students, because many of them might be non-acceptors of evolution, give them the evidence for evolution. So I went and looked in the books, trying, you know, as you do when you're a young professor, trying to see what other people have said, and I discovered that none of the evolution textbooks available had any information at all about the evidence for evolution, because it was just considered, you know, everybody knew it. It's like looking at a physics textbook and saying, well, it starts off, well, here, what's the evidence for atoms or for the speed of light being constant? That's just taken as a given. But with evolution, you really can't do that because evolution isn't like physics or chemistry. You start off with half of the population not <laughs> accepting it. So I had to figure out, okay, well, how do I find out what all the evidence for evolution is in a coherent way I can teach the students? And in order to do that, you have to go back to textbooks and I have some on my shelf from the 1920s 
in the 1910s when evolution was not so widely accepted and when people really had to give people the evidence for evolution. Um, there's a lot of it is in Darwin himself, evidence from biogeography and from embryology, but Darwin did not have a fossil record. He didn't have any genetics to speak of, and they didn't really in the 20s either. But at least, you know, they, they talked about that. So I updated that material found out the areas of evidence, and then I talked to my class, and it was a very popular part of the course, because um, I got to wiggle my ears for one thing, so the students come back after 20 years, and, you know, they've forgotten everything I've taught, but they remember ear wiggling and nipples on males as a polytropic byproduct of selection on females. Anyway, so I taught this, and then my friend, who was a trade editor of Oxford University Press, Latha Menon, came to visit me. And uh, she said, you know, you should write a book about this stuff. And I said, I can't write a popular book. I don't know how to do that. But I knew that there was no popular book. So I thought, well, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to get this evidence before the public as a whole instead of just my class. And so she said, well, write a proposal to John Brockman, the, the science agent. He's very famous. Yes, of course I am. I didn't know how to write a proposal. So I wrote him and he said, okay, here's what you do, right? Me, like eight or nine pages, and um, I did that, and Lothar helped me, and he said, okay, I'll sell the book, and he sold the book, and Viking Penguin bought it, and then I had the task of having to write it, <laughs> and that was the hard part, and I wrote the first chapter, which was on the nature of evolution, why we need to know the evidence for it, and it was pretty dreadful. I handed it to Lothar because she was my editor. She, I mean, it had been bought by OUP in England and Viking Penguin in the U.S. And she sent, she looked at it for an evening, gave it back to me, and it was completely covered with red scribbles. She's very famous for not only her quality of editing, but the, but the quantity of it. And it was from that that I learned that there's a certain way to write popular science. And Dawkins mastered this a long time ago. It's what's called the classic style in Steve Pinker's latest book, uh, a sense of style, you know. There's a way you do it. I don't try to ape these guys' um, quality of writing. I couldn't possibly do that anyway. But you address the reader as if, you know, you're talking to them. You let them know something about you as a person. That is, you don't withhold your own opinions or your personal traits. You don't. You're not. You know. You don't divulge your life to your readers, but. They want to know there's a human being behind the pages. Um, you want to write short sentences. You want to make your arguments coherent. If things are difficult, you say, well, let's back up and go over that again. And it was through that one chapter that I've learned how to begin writing in a popular way. And then, uh, so I did the rest of the book. The rest of the book came out very naturally after that. And, and uh, it, became know, a, it became a New York Times bestseller, no? Rob Lake Dick to It was, and I couldn't believe it. Wow. It's still selling really well. And, you know, I did this sort of consciously and I wrote the book, not just to intend it to be used by um, the public, to be read by the public, but also to be used in classes. So it's got a, it's got legs. In other words, not only does the public buy it, but classes in both high school and, in fact, over at the lab school, I talked about it two weeks ago because they're using it in their evolution section. But a lot of universities use it too. So it continues to sell. Um, and that was, a, you know, that was an unexpected <laughs> had you always envisioned, I mean, we'll come back to the content in a second, but had you always envisioned at some point that you would be drawing bridges 
bridges with the public at large to try to do science communication? Was this something was this something that sort of was in your radar of uh, the to-do list or had you always thought you'd just be sort of a, a technical scientist writing to your peers and really sticking to your, you know, academic uh, context? Uh, no, no, I actually, it was ingrained in me from a very young age because when I was in high school, for example, I wrote a lot personal things and I wrote for the, you know, the, the literary magazine, poetry and stuff like that. And when I got to graduate school, one of the first things I did was a book review for evolution, not a popular journal, but a scientific journal, but I, I really enjoyed the hell out of it. And that, at that time, I sort of realized unconsciously and now even more consciously that writing for the public for general consumption is a skill that you're not only not taught when you get an academic education, but it's immensely difficult. It's a challenge. And it's, this is one of the reasons I retired last year. I've been retired since September um, because I got, you know, all the perquisites of academics that you get and all the tasks you have, I've mastered those. I knew how to teach. I knew how to write papers. I knew how to get grants. I knew how to mentor graduate students. And those things became, when they were no longer challenging, they were no longer interesting. The only interesting thing in science that remained was finding out stuff. And as you know, finding out stuff is not something that happens on a daily basis. <laughs> My view is if you can find out one cool thing, you know, every couple of years, you're doing pretty well. Right. So yeah. that challenge remained. But popular writing is a challenge that is constant, pervasive, and you can never master it. You can always get better. So, you know... And there's a certain frisson pleasure you get when you put together words for the public that you don't get when you're writing a scientific paper. You're so. very right. I mean, I, I, I listen. What we're doing right now is part of, in a sense, what you're describing. Right? There is there is an immense sense of gratification. Look, it's all great when you write and you know to to your peers and you have to do the basic science and nobody's contesting that. But there's something very very pleasurable, as you correctly said, not only in Putting yourself out there, I mean, I wouldn't have met Jerry Coyne had I not reached out in this forum, but also the 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 the, the quickness of how of the, the meme propagation, right? I mean, uh, the typical time that it takes from you know conception of an idea to then people consuming it. By people we mean our fellow colleagues, uh, you know, is a very, very long process. Whereas here you and I could sit down for a chat and then I will know tonight from several thousand people, hopefully, that they really enjoyed it. And there's something truly magical, right? I'm not making any money. You're not making any money off this or very little. Uh, and yet we love what we're doing. So I can completely understand what you're talking about. It's, it's wonderful. That's like blogging, you know. I mean, I don't make any money from that. And um, when I started my blog, I didn't anticipate that it would have these unexpected rewards like my second book or the fact that I make a lot of friends that I could go visit, you know, through the e-world. I did it because there's something in me. I think Mencken describes this in his literature, too. This, it just you need some, There's something in you that needs to expel your thoughts into the ether. And, Absolutely. And if you do it in a way that the words are pretty and mellifluous, that makes it even better. And, you know... When you read somebody like Dawkins, who I see as the master of you know scientific writing, at least in my field, and you read something he's written, um, like um, the Blind Watchmaker, for example, the first part on the how the bats find their prey, and you you know that's a challenge because you know uh, at least I know I'll never be able to write like that. But well, that's why he's a fellow, I think, of both uh, uh, you know the Royal Society of Science and of Arts and Letters. I think I think one of the the few 
academics that is a member of both societies. Is that is that not right? Yeah, no, that is true. I can't think of anybody else. Yeah, who... yeah so he's, he's certainly very unique. Uh, now, what I wanted to talk about next is, uh, hold on a second, let me see. Yeah, so in evolutionary psychology, because you were talking about sort of how you obtain all of these different uh, sources of evidence uh, in constructing your argument as to why evolution is true, uh, the exact same epistemology is used in evolutionary psychology uh, and the, the, the fancy formal language is you, you build nomological networks of cumulative evidence, right? So, for example, if you're trying to argue that the waist-to-hip ratio of 0.7, the hourglass figure, is uh, adaptive for reasons X, Y, Z, contrary to what you typically hear from detractors of EP who argue that you just do a bit of hand-waving and you come up with a post-hoc story that sounds cute. It's anything but that. I mean, if you're a serious evolutionary psychologist. And so I've used a few examples in my writings to demonstrate how we build these nomological networks of cumulative evidence. And usually I ask people in the audience, many times they're likely to be quite hostile, can you think of any context within your disciplines where people have amassed as much evidence stemming from completely different disciplines to point to that robust finding. And of course, usually they can't. So that's actually something that I find particularly galling, maybe the most galling of all attacks against evolutionary psychology, that it's just a bunch of just-so storytelling and it couldn't be further from the truth. Do, do you have any comments to make specifically about that epistemology as applied to evolutionary psychology? Well, let me say one thing first, which is, is I don't, I think it. It's time we have a book called Why Evolutionary Psychology is True. I'm not sure there is such a popular book. Right. Is, is there? No, no. Uh, the, I mean, there is in the sense that people might apply evolutionary psychology to mating and indirectly, hence, they're, they're doing what you're suggesting. But to, to lay it out in the way that you've done in your book, but in the context of evolutionary psychology, I don't think so, no. Well, I mean, then I would say that anybody listening to it or you yourself, <laughs> that's a completely open niche that really needs to be filled especially in the face of all these detractors that you mentioned. Right. About these detractors, I mean, it is true that the field has been polluted by certain people that say stuff without evidence. I mean, this guy Kanazawa, right. you know, I've read some of his columns. He's the whipping boy, but he's also the guy that people like PZ and, right. and Rebecca Watson will cite as, you know, look at that idiot. He's saying these stupid things, there's no evidence, so the whole field is garbage, yes. you know. Completely unaware of the sort of serious intellectual work that's being done in the field. Right, exactly. I actually, I don't know if you, you remember or maybe not aware of it, Kanazawa got into hot waters about five, six years ago. Uh, he used to be a very popular blogger at Psychology Today. And he wrote an article where he was describing some research by some other folks about uh, the perceived attractiveness of uh, black men, black women, I think white men, white women. And, you know, he, he's quite bombastic. And so the title of his article was arguably offensive and so on. And so people went absolutely wild, asked for his tenure resignation. Uh, he was purged from Psychology Today. And I actually wrote an article, which is still available for people to read, where I said, you know, purging a blogger sets a very dangerous precedent. I mean, if this guy is an idiot, if he's saying wrong things, the best way you could punish him is to keep his words out there so that he forevermore he could be punished for having said horrible things to purge him is the perfectly wrong thing to do and of course nobody originally had the courage to write that i received a lot of 
private emails from people saying, you know, thank you for your courage. But I was astonished at how many people were silent at the fact that they felt that it was completely appropriate to purge this guy. If he's saying stupid stuff, let his words be the punishing metric, right? Yeah, well, there's two ways. I mean, by purging, you mean they actually removed his article? They removed his article. They I, He stepped down from being a Psychology Today blogger. They were, there was a whole campaign to try to get him fired from his tenure job at the London School of Economics. I thought that was grotesque. Yeah, I think, I mean, to remove an article that's already been accepted is invidious. To try to get somebody fired for what they say on social media, which is what psychology is today, is, is invidious as well. That's freedom of speech. The only thing about the only reason somebody should get fired from their professional job as a professor is if they, you know, don't meet professional standards, if right, they're teaching right. crap to their students, if they're not doing their job. In terms of psychology today, removing him as an author, I can see them, I mean, I didn't read that particular article I heard. Actually, I think I did after before it went down. But I suppose they have the right to get rid of him if, if he's saying stuff that's stupid. But leaving stuff, I mean, taking stuff down because it's politically offensive to me is not justifiable. That, that is censorship. Well, and, and so and I, and in making my argument, I took, I took a, a, if you like, a, a, a Machiavell, not Machiavellian, a truthful position with regard to Holocaust deniers. Right? I'm, I'm Jewish, you're Jewish. Uh, I mean, if, any, if you want to test somebody's commitment to freedom of speech, pick a issue that should be very personally offensive. And so I, I very strategically picked uh, the case of, I can't remember his name, there, used to, there was a Holocaust design, uh, denier in the early 90s. So I was a doctoral student at Cornell, and he, he had come to Cornell. Do you know his name? Does that ring a bell? Uh, he was a Canadian guy, wasn't he? Or? Maybe, I, I can't remember. Anyways, he, I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I, I remember he was uh, like either kicked out of Canada or arrested or something like that but and he uh, was he was going around to all of sort of the elite universities saying hey i'm not saying it happened or it didn't happen let's have a debate so he was kind of couching it under the hey let's talk about this this is sort of freedom academic freedom let's discuss it and of course my position was i mean nothing could be more grotesque than to question whether the holocaust happened or not yet i was for his right to be an idiot, right? And so that made it a lot more difficult for people to then argue against me regarding Kanazawa when a Jewish guy is saying that a Holocaust denier is allowed to spew his, you know, his bullshit. So, yeah, I agree with you completely. I'm an absolutist in terms of if somebody's going to, you've invited somebody to come to your university or to write an article and they write this kind of stuff, you can't either disinvite them or purge what they do. On the other hand, if somebody goes around Time after time after time again, and saying things like, you know, um, blacks are intellectually inferior to whites when there's no evidence for it. There comes a point where you don't have to invite them anymore. Right. You don't owe them an invitation. But if you've invited them, and if you've given them, it's like if, if you know, um, one of the conservative columnists for the New York Times came out with a Holocaust denial column. You know, uh, they might they have a right to fire that guy if they want to for not adhering to journalistic standards. They don't have a right to get rid of the column. Right. Uh, I, I agree with you and with Hitchens that Holocaust denialism, and I've read some of these people, is is useful to allow that to be promulgated because it was only then when I read that and then read the counter arguments that I realized the nature of the evidence for the Holocaust 
You know, I would have just said, well, you know, the stonalism is bullshit. And somebody will say, well, why? What's the evidence? I can tell you. Hitler never signed a document authorizing, you know, the camps. Well, yeah, he didn't, but there's all these other evidence. And the Nazis, of course, tried to cover up a lot of this stuff. And it was then that I, you know, the counter speech that educated me on the evidence of the Holocaust. So, yeah, I agree with you. That's one of the reasons why why counter speech is a much better tactic than censorship. Exactly. So you probably are familiar with, uh, because we were talking about disinvitations, you're familiar with the work of uh, FIRE. Do you know who that is? Do you know the organization? Does that ring oh, a bell? Yes, I thought you, thought you were saying a person. Yeah, actually I am. I've read some their website and uh, the book. That, what's the name of the guy? Who's it's uh, Greg Lukianov. Lukianov. Yeah, he wrote a book, I think, which I read. It yeah, was, he I'm, actually he was a guest on my show, and I actually, in my... Uh, Ottawa lecture recently on political correctness, which you were kind enough to to mention on your uh, very popular blog. I actually referred to one of their studies where uh, where they looked at patterns of disinvitations. Uh, I think I, I might be getting some of the numbers wrong, but I think it was over the past fourteen years, and they had identified one hundred and ninety two disinvitations, of which, of course, there was a clear political reality to the patterns of dis disinvitations. Uh, and, of course, I thought that that was uh, very, very problematic. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, again, you don't have, you're not obliged to invite somebody who's spouting what is largely considered to be nonsense. But once you have invited somebody, and a lot of these disinvitations are people that have not only a message worth hearing, but a message that I agree with completely. People yeah, like yeah. I in here see yeah. a little example, or Mariam Namazi, um, once you've invited them, it, it is really censorship to, because, you know, you've asked them to come and talk, and then you tell them, well, now our students don't want to hear your message. That's to me, a censorship, as right, opposed right. to not inviting them in the first place. This pattern, as you know, is increasing college campuses in Canada and the UK and the US, and it's very worrying to me. So let's talk a bit about that, and then we'll come back to your second book on the schism between religion and science. So what do you think with all this lunacy, the political correctness, the microaggressions, the safe spaces, the cultural appropriation, and the trigger warnings? What, what are your thoughts on that? Have you experienced it yourself as a professor? Uh, not so much, because the University of Chicago which almost uniquely amongst American universities has this speech code in which they will not punish anybody that says anything as long as it's not inciting immediate violence. It's basically the First Amendment or creating harassment in the workplace. So here, you know, we don't experience, I mean, we have the student, the thing is the, the administration is much, much harder, taking a much, much harder line in this stuff than the students because the students are becoming politically correct. I mean, if you look at the student newspaper, there was somebody that wore a sombrero at a Halloween party last year, and man, did that create a fracas, you know? It was cultural appropriation and simultaneous degradation and bigotry against Hispanics, you know? Um, one can argue whether that's the case. In that case, it's a judgment call, but the reaction was completely disproportionate. But, you know, in terms of what's going on all over the country, I mean, there are places like Oberlin and Yale, and Dartmouth, where the students not only act like, you know, spoiled children, which is what they are, but the administration caves into them. Even at Harvard Law School, they got rid of the coat of arms because it was held by somebody that was a slave owner, you know, or a racist or something like that. You know, and I, I, rep I find slave owning reprehensible just as much as the next person, but we can't go back and purge history. I was heartened to see that Yale decided to 
ch not change the name of the Woodrow Wilson School. <laughs> Although, and, and yeah. incidentally, as you probably know the case with the uh, Christakis's, uh, Nic yeah. Nicholas Christakis and his wife, she ended up leaving, not right? Uh, I'm not, I think they're still there, right? But she's not teaching. She's not anymore. teaching anymore. I think. I think he's still. I mean, nothing's happened with him. But yeah. I'm, I'm guessing she probably decided that it was too much, too much for her to handle. And then yeah, it was reprehensible. That Yale didn't stand by her. I just read something yesterday about the statement that Yale issued about her not teaching. They said something like, "Yeah, this is probably for the best of everybody," right. which is not exactly a ringing endorsement. <laughs> Now let me ask you this. I mean, you you. I mean, I often criticize very openly my colleagues. Maybe it doesn't make me friends with some, but uh, that a lot of our our colleagues, uh, in a sense, are frankly quite cowardly in the fact that they don't stand up and participate in these very important public issues. And yet you epitomize exactly that which I seek for all of our colleagues to do, which is you're engaged. Not only obviously you've gotten you've got your chops as a scientist. But you participate in all these discussions. You talk about Islam. You talk about political correctness. What is, I mean, is it, is it just a question of personality type? You and I are endowed with the unique, random combination of genes that makes us compelled to weigh in on these issues while others are? Or is there, are there any strategies that we could use to compel our colleagues to participate in these really important discussions. I don't know if strategies to compel them, but we, there are certainly strategies to persuade them. But I think you're right. It's a matter of personality right. types. I mean, if I wanted to be a bit Lanzmann-ish about it, I'd say, well, we're, both of us are just obnoxious Jews, and we don't care. <laughs> you know, we think we should say what comes That is anti-Semitic stereotyping, yeah. sir. But as you know, Jews are allowed to be, you know, anti-Semitic. We're the only ones allowed to tell Jewish jokes. For right, right, right. You remember the, you remember the, you remember the episode on Seinfeld where a guy uh, converts to Judaism so that he can tell Jewish <laughs> jokes without being accused of anything. Absolutely classic. So Steve Pinker and I are always telling each other Jewish jokes to try to find a joke that neither of us have heard. And we've, you know, done a couple of them, but most of them. I mean, the genre is pretty widespread. Um I think more people should speak out. It's interesting. I'm not sure if it's at Yale at Missouri, but one of the faculty wrote the faculty wrote a petition supporting free speech, um, and it was signed only by the scientists. The members of the humanities department would not sign it. In fact, some of them supported some of the egregious demands that the students were making. Um, I wanted to mention that you know, I grew up in the '60s in an era of student revolt. You know, I was arrested for for trying to picket the South African embassy against apartheid. I was run off my campus by state police for opposing the Vietnam War. And it's interesting to see the difference between the students then who were protesting what I see as real issues, strong issues of injustice. Uh, the Vietnam War, segregation in the South, um, you know, the lying to us by the government about the war. And what students are protesting now, which is not really you know, so much worldwide or global or serious injustices so much as their personal injustices. The fact that they don't get as much scholarships as they want, that they don't get grades as high as they want, that they're served the wrong foods in the cafeterias, for God's sake. I and mean, that was the Oberlin's big thing, <laughs> that the General Tsao's chicken was was steamed and not fried. I mean, that sounds like something out of the onion, um, that the banh mi sandwiches were not made in the appropriately Vietnamese way. Um, when you read the list of student demands, and there's many of them now, what they want, some of them are okay. 
Um, and clearly there is endemic racism and bigotry in many institutions, but they sound like a list of petulant, whiny complaints about how I'm not getting what I deserve, as opposed to the world needs to be better, which is the milieu I grew up in. Now, I may sound like a grumpy old man, you know, saying, well, things were better in my day, but I really do see a parallel um, between, I mean, not a parallel, but a lack of parallel between what the students are doing then and what the students are complaining about now. I, I call them infantilized coddled buffoons. That's, yeah, that's uh, what Stephen Fry just, the same word he just used. Is, for, it, is that right? Yeah, he just did oh, a... Oh, he must have, he must have stolen, stolen it from me. I now count him as one of my fans. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, he was interviewed on David Rubin. David Rubin, that's right, yeah. So, and he said, that he. I think the, his trope was the infant, infantilization of our culture. Oh, right, yes, yes. So, uh, he actually left Twitter, uh, as you may or may not know, because he couldn't handle the sort of the... The, the social justice warrior mobs coming after him for, I, I think they had accused him of saying something that was transphobic. Is that, am I getting the story right? I think so. And he, he's been subject to all that kind of stuff, politically incorrect statements about homosexuality. I mean, for God's sake, the guy's gay. Yeah, exactly. It's very odd to me, and maybe you can help me understand this more, but a lot of the rage blogging and authoritarian leftism these days amongst People who really do care about social justice, people who are on the left who are consider themselves progressives, their bio is directed against people that are their allies. Yeah, well, I think I think at one point it becomes sort of uh, self cannibalization, right? I mean, you you can no longer find other victims to to attack, and so you sort of turn on your own tail and you start you know chewing it off. I mean, it's just I, I've got a theory which I had discussed in uh, in my uh, Ottawa lecture. Uh, regarding sort of this victimhood uh, culture. And, and I use a psychiatric disorder uh, known as Munchausen syndrome, uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with it. I don't, I, you think you're sick all the time or something, right? Uh, no, it's not that's hypochondria. No, it's... Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, Munchausen syndrome, so there are two, two instantiations of it. Munchausen syndrome is where you feign being sick oh. uh, because then that will garner you a lot of empathy. So you, you really are getting your your reward from the empathy that is uh, that, that that you're garnering. Uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is where you uh, harm somebody that is under your care, whether it be an elderly person, whether it be a pet, whether typically it's your biological child. Usually it's a mother that does this to her biological child. So you harm your child because then you can go to the hospital and people can say, oh my God, Suzanne, my God, yeah, right? And so this it's a very grotesque sort of diabolical psychiatric condition. And I, I've argued, I mean, speculatively, but I think there is some, some plausibility to, to, to my theory that, you know, this is sort of a collective Munchausen syndrome, right? Where people have learned that they could be coddled, they could be paid attention to, the administration will cave to each of my, if I scream oppression Olympics, if I am the top most aggrieved person amongst everyone. And so I really think it's a, it's a form of sort of collective Munchausen. What, what do you think of that? I think I agree. I mean, I, this morning I realized, because I, I posted a piece this morning about, this is from the Washington Post, that it wasn't a joke, about some woman who wrote this column. She's one of the editors saying, I I treat my cats in a gender-neutral way. So I don't call them she's, even though they're females. I call each cat they in 
deference to the people who feel that they're both male and female. And there are some that say, you know, they refer to themselves as they. And, you know, one of the commenters made a comment, which I thought was quite present, saying, this is, has nothing to do with transgender rights. This is about the author um, doing virtue signaling. And that's sort of what you said. I mean, so much of this is an attempt to get love from other people by showing that you're such a good person, which I think is pretty much similar to what you just... Well, it's, it's a, two, two things to mention. First, I responded to your tweet jokingly saying that I don't, I don't understand how... Uh, I've always thought that all cats were female, including the male cats who self-identify as female. But you probably haven't checked your Twitter feed. Oh, uh, no, I don't really read Twitter. <laughs> but the, yeah, yeah, I, I guess one of, my, one of my goals in life is to get you to, to have one follower and let it be me. I know it's a losing proposition, but hey, a man can dream. Uh, <laughs> but the second thing I was going to mention about virtue signaling, I've actually written, uh, I've done a, a sad truth clip on this issue uh, in reference to... Uh, you know, every time there's a terrorist uh, attack, uh, you know, everybody changes their handle to the flag of, you know, yeah. of Belgium, of France. And I used actually an evolutionary principle. I argued that, look, for something to to be an honest signal, it has to be costly, costly, costly in the Zahavian sense. Right. I mean, in the true sense of of what we mean by handicapping. And so uh, to, to, to put the photo of Belgium is bullshit. Right. Uh, for me to speak out the way that I do, if I can speak of myself, or I can certainly speak about your heroic work, uh, you know, at per personal cost and professional cost, there's a real security threat when I speak about some of these things, especially in the context of some of the neighborhoods in Montreal. That's a lot more serious uh, signal than changing my... And then some people got upset and said, but what's wrong with, with exhibiting empathy and solidarity? Well, because it's bullshit. It's completely costless, Right. It is costless. Like, yeah, it's virtue signaling. I have to admit, I didn't put up a French flag. I didn't have the, you know, the desire or the, even the knowledge to do it. Um, but you know, this I this idea that you're a victim. I mean, it's a victimhood. Oppression Olympics, as you say, that goes along with virtue signaling. I think you know because if you're oppressed, you're a good person. That's part of the leftist ethos. Is that the oppressed are good and the non-oppressed are bad. That's why there's so much sympathy for what I consider the invidious aspects of Islam, the oppression of women, the oppression of gays. And yet feminists and um, and gays support, like, Palestine. Que queers for Palestine. <laughs> yeah, and, and when Israel says, well, you know, we're the most gay-friendly nation in the Middle East, which is true, they're accused of pinkwashing, which is this term, you know, Israel showing how nice it is. Well, if you're a gay in Palestine or places like Iran or Iraq, they can kill you. It, it just defies understanding. Well, this is where the collision between two aspects of liberalism comes together. Sympathy for the underdog, which should be there, but um, also, you know, a desire to to be you know, to have progressive values. And when it comes to Islam, for example, those things collide. Well, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say Muslims are considered oppressed, although I'm not sure why exactly that's true. Possibly because some of them are brown, which right. is really superficial. And so what the, they can get away with a lot more stuff than Westerners can. Well, the reality is it's quite extraordinary that this narrative of oppression of Muslims uh, is so pervasive because in many of the countries where Islam dominates, 
you, I mean, it's not that you don't, you have a lack of pluralism. You have countries that are 99% Islamic, right? 99 and 98 and 97 and 99.2. So, I mean, it's quite astonishing uh, to argue that somebody who has existed their whole life in an environment where they have never met someone who is any different from them could then be oppressed because they are a minority. By definition, they're a complete majority in almost all of the countries that we care about. So it's it's just ludicrous. It's bullshit. Yeah, I suppose there are situations, you know, in the U.S. or in Europe where Muslims sure. are in the minority. And there are cases of hate crimes against them, which I deplore. But the idea that, you know, you're virtuous if you're a Muslim. And we see this because it's off limits, basically, to attack Islam. Yeah. It's shown in the demonization of what I consider the heroes, people like Majid Nawaz and Ayn Hirsi Ali, the liberal voices of either ex-Muslims or moderate Muslims. These people are vilified. Yeah. And I don't understand why, because they're a member of that oppressed minority. And, you know, I haven't really figured that out. Maybe you have a theory for that one, too. But Well, I mean, they're, they're of course, they're uh, called porch monkeys and uh, native informants. Uh, the bottom line is there, is there is now an effective blasphemy law. We all abide by Sharia law. I come from Lebanon. I know about uh, the threats when you speak out against in the case of Lebanon, it wasn't so much against Islam, although you certainly didn't want to do that. Uh, it was, for example, speaking against the government. I remember one time I had a conversation with my dad where I said, what do you mean? There, there, there was no freedom of speech in Lebanon fully the way we understand it in the West. And he said, well, of course there was. I said, could you stand up and be absolutely free in caricaturing? No, 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 you can't do that. So in his mind, <laughs> you know, it's like it's the, it's the yes, I believe in freedom of speech, but, right? So he was the original but brigade member. Sorry, Dad, I don't mean to be making fun of you. Uh, I'm not sure if you'll watch this. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a real sense in the West that's been internalized that when it comes to Islam, it is absolutely off-limit. You're welcome to criticize 9,999 other religions. And as a matter of fact, if you do that, you're progressive, you're enlightened. But if you use the exact same tools of, of satire, of mockery on Islam, you're a bigot, you're a Nazi, you're an Islamophobe. It is astonishing. Yeah, I guess it's, again, because they consider Muslims to be oppressed. So, right. you know, but that's a double standard. It really is. It's holding them to a lower level of civility than we hold everybody else to. And as you're speaking, I realize that's why Majid Nawaz and Ayn Hirsi Ali are demonized. These people should be heroes. Exactly. Especially Ayn Hirsi Ali. She's the poster child for courage. I mean, she's black. She was generally mutilated. She left her country, made a new life for herself, worked her way up to member of the Dutch parliament, travels with armed guards because she's under threat. And yet so many leftists hate her. And it's why, I guess you're right, it's because she criticizes Islam and she's doing something that's not politically correct. <laughs> exactly right. So let's, uh, so we'll talk, I want to I go back to your second book. We're talking about religion. So this is a nice segue to talk about the schism between science and religion. And then I'll wrap it up to ask you about, at the end, how your retirement has been so far. But let's leave that personal question for the end of our conversation. Tell us a bit about your latest book, 2015, uh, about the schism between science and religion. Yeah, well, it's called Faith Versus Fact, which is, and the, the thesis is that that they're incompatible. You know, I went, the first, when I started, it all came out of the first book. So well, I got a lot of pushback from creationists, of course, because I wrote my book about why evolution is true. And so I started reading about religion and why people would object to evolution. And that got me into theology, and then that got me into 
you know, more sophisticated theology, which is just more sophisticated bullshit, <laughs> my view. And I basically realized that when I, for example, when you go across the street to the library and look at the science and religion section, 99% of the books that deal with those two subjects together have a thesis that they're compatible, that they can live in harmony with one another, that they either occupy separate spheres or they actually can be friends and reinforce each other. That's the NOMA principle of Gould. Yeah, Stephen Jay Gould. Yeah, right. The, the, the first one, that they're separate spheres, which is, you know, deeply wrong. We can talk about that if we have time. But, you know, I'm a, as a scientist reading theology, I found myself plunged into a world that was very discomforting and alien. And I suddenly realized why. It's that most religions, not all of them, but most of them, are founded on statements about reality in the same way that science is, that there's a heaven, that there's a God, that there's an afterlife, that God wants you to behave in a certain way, that there's a hell, that there's angels, that there were miracles, that Jesus lived. These are statements that, at least in principle, are empirically testable. And yet, when they try to support them, and I would claim that like Christianity without the divinity of Christ is, is not... In fact, the Bible says that if Christ be not crucified, our faith be in vain. I think that Paul said that. And, you know, even honest theologians will admit that. So religion is basically based on, um, even though it's more than that, based on a series of assertions about what's true. But when you try to argue for their truth, you can't do it because religion, unlike science, has no way of verifying its epistemic claims. And that's why there's, you know, a gazillion different religions in this planet and no way to discover which of any of them is the right religion. Whereas science, we only have one science. We don't have science branching off into, you know, the conservative Lutherans and the, you know, um, liberal Lutherans. If the, looking at religion, the phylogeny of religions, and I, in some of my talks I show this, it winds up with all these branches, with 40,000 branches of Christianity alone. Each of those schisms is based on a different assertion about what's true about the universe. Right. And those religions proliferate because there's no way to decide which one is true. So the claim that, you know, and theologians, and I had to document this, because a lot of people say religion isn't about truth statements. And so I had to go and read a lot of theology and find statements by respected theologians saying, of course it is. And Gould is wrong that religion is not based on truth statements. It is. Because without those truth statements, what grounding do we have for our actions and our beliefs and things like that? So, I mean, the basic claim is just one sentence. Religion makes claims about the way the world is, as does science, but only science has the way to figure out which of those claims is true. So that's basically the tenor of the book. So then how do we explain? I mean, I, I, I know the answer to this, but for the uh, viewing pleasure of our audience, how do we explain the existence of someone like Francis Collins, who is a respected scientist, who's a physician also by training, who's the head of the NIH, yet who seems perfectly comfortable in having these two epistemological frameworks exist in the same brain? How does he do it? Cognitive dissonance is my, I mean, you, you know more about this than I do, but right. it's manifestly clear to me that a lot of people um, can believe two opposing things in their head at the same time. For example, um, we have Bill Maher. I mean, I respect him a lot, and he's pro-science, but he's made some dubious statements yeah. about vaccinations, for example. You know, that is kind of worrisome. So there's a lot of people that I respect that, 
I just I don't understand it because I myself I cannot I wouldn't be able to go to church and say all these things for which there's no evidence and then come into the lab and throw those things away. It's living your life on two different planes at the same time. When you walk through the door of your lab, if you're Francis Collins or Ken Miller, you operate as an atheist. You assume that God is not there, that everything is due to physical law and everything is to be explained by naturalism. And yet when you go to church, you abandon that view. Now, isn't it, let's see if, if this is what they might say, sort of a natural theology perspective. All I'm trying to do, I'm speaking now as Francis Collins, all I'm trying to do is understand the inner workings and the mind of God. Those natural laws exist, and science is the tool by which I will, uh, you know, uh, explain them. But that doesn't ex that doesn't mean that there isn't a divine presence that created those natural laws. Is this the way that he can have those two things coexisting in his brain? Well, that's what some people will say. I mean, ultimately, of course, the reason comes down to this, I believe, that religion gives a certain level of psychological comfort to people in a chaotic and uncertain world. So you have you maintain this cognitive dissonance, and I don't, you know, you, you resolve it by the fact that one of these aspects, religion, gives you immense comfort in your life. To think that you might go to heaven, that you're not mortal and your life is finite, you know, that's very comforting to people. So to me, that's one of the reasons for maintaining this. I'm not so sure that a lot of scientists who are religious really think or are motivated by their desire to find out the workings of God's law. That was the case, for example, for Newton. Right. I mean, you know, he said that explicitly, and I think that was true. And a lot of um, people in favor of religion and science comedy will say, well, look at all these, you know, science grew out of religion. People's attempt to understand the minds of God. Well, I'm not so sure that that's true. Right, um, right. There are people like, you know, Spinoza and other scientists. Well, he wasn't a scientist. He was a philosopher. philosopher but, yeah. you know, he was, but there are other scientists who I think were just motivated by pure curiosity, you know, and weren't saying, well, I want to figure out what God does. For someone like Francis Collins, I'd say, well, you know, if you're trying to understand the working of God's mind, first convince me that God exists. Right. <laughs> and he has no evidence to do that. I mean, it all came from him seeing a, a tripartite frozen waterfall one day, which convinced him of the existence of the Trinity, whereupon he fell on his knees and prayed and converted from being an atheist, which is what he used to be. And just the thought of an adult doing that and embracing something that's a bigger scale equivalent of Santa Claus is just so alien to me. <laughs> I don't understand it, but... No, I, I'm with you. Uh, and I, speaking about the comfort argument, uh, in, in one of the chapters of uh, my uh, 2011 book, The Consuming Instinct, uh, chapter 8, I titled it Marketing Hope by Selling Lies. And in that chapter, I talk about different peddlers of hope, uh, medical quacks, self-help gurus, uh, cosmetic manufacturers, right? They sell hope, right? Uh, hey, put on this cream and it will reverse the aging process. Uh, and, and of course, the greatest hope peddler, I argue, and I think you'd agree, is the religion memoplex, right? Because as you said, it, sol it quote, solves the most fundamental existential angst that we face, which is our looming death. And so in a sense, I feel as though folks like you and I are maladaptively honest. In other words, it is a lot easier to simply believe. I'd like to think that that beautiful bird pet that I had that died when I was 13, Misho, I'm going to be reunited with her. That's nice. To think that I will never see her again is not nice. And so it's, I would be very curious to see whether, whether there is a personality trait that's specific to what I'm saying, sort of a maladaptive honesty uh, that 
discriminates between believers and non-believers. Do you think there's any validity to what I'm oh, saying? Absolutely. I mean, people like you and me and many others, I think, are constitutionally unable to believe that. If somebody told you, if you practice hard enough, and this has been done by the anthropologist from Stanford, Tanya Lerman, if you practice hard enough, you could convince yourself that this is real. I don't think that you or I could do that. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from having a certain scientific mentality where you're trained to only accept things for which there's evidence. I think that's why older scientists, at least in the United States, tend to be less religious Give, even though older Americans tend to be more religious, is that the longer you practice your craft, the more doubtful you get. This is also why I think better scientists, those in the National Academy, tend to be much less religious than sort of the average journeyman scientist. Something like 93% the study yeah, was, right? Yeah. yeah, and 86% in the case of the Royal Society. So I think we're just constitutionally unable to do that. I've, I mean, I've come to terms with it, you know. With um, your mortality, you mean? Well, not... It's weird, you know, I woke up, I was flying back from India three or four days ago, and, and I woke up in my seat halfway through the flight, and all I had this immense wave of dread on me, thinking, Jesus, you know, I'm 66, I'm going to die in 20 years or so, and it was pretty uncomfortable for a minute, but then it passed. Um, I know this is going to happen. I think it's always better, like you said, to know the truth, although in my book, I do consider in one point, you know, is it better at some point, to let yourself be deceived at religious fictions? Is there any circumstance in which we should not tell people that they're wrong, that they're right. The only one I could think of was the dying grandmother scenario. Your grandmother's dying. She thinks she's going to go to heaven. You're in the hospital. You know, do you tell her she's full of shit, that she's going to be worm food like the rest of it? No, you don't do that. Let her have her comforts. But in general, I can't think of many other circumstances in which you should allow people their delusions. Even slaves, I think, you know, people say, well, the slaves were comforted in the South because the slave master every Sunday, and you can see this in the movie, 12 Years a Slave, would take them aside and preach to them about how their lives were going to be great in the afterlife. That kept them, it was to the interest of the slave master because it kept them placid and docile. But it would be better for them if they knew the truth, that they're not going to have it because then they might do something about their situation or at least you know, not accepted. You know. I've actually argued uh, a similar point in, in an article I wrote on my Psychology Today uh, co column uh, about sort of carpe diem is more consistent with an atheist ethos. There is no eternal life. There is no do-overs. Every second counts. The only way I'm going to achieve immortality is either through genetic propagation or mimetic propagation. Uh, hopefully our chat will last forever and that's how we'll be immortal in our books and our ideas. And therefore, that forces you and I to to really get shit done, right? Because there is no do-over. Uh, I can't sit down and rest now and have another shot at it in the next life. And so in a sense, the idea of live for the moment, the reverence for your life is maybe paradoxically greater when you're an atheist than when you're a believer, no? I think that's definitely true. At least it is in my case. I mean, I realized that my life was fine. I know my genetic history. I know when the males tend to die off in my family by 85 or so. So I thought, okay, I have 20 years left. I've worked my butt off as a scientist. But let's have some fun now. Let's do something more challenging, something different. And that's one of the reasons I think I decided to retire. So the, actually, that's a perfect way to segue into our last uh, block. How has it, I know it's only been, I guess, what, a year now that you've been retired? Less than that, September 30th. How has it been so far? And so as you 
sort of trace your trajectory for more than 20 years. Let's give you 40 more years. Yeah. How do you see, where do you see yourself going? What are your sort of final thoughts about your retirement? Yeah, well, the first thing I have to do is shake off the shackles of my academic tedium. Because as you see, I'm still in my office, right? I'm talking to you <laughs> from my office, which I negotiated to keep indefinitely as a, an emeritus professor. And so I still come to work between 5.30 and 6 every morning, even though nobody else is here and I'm not getting paid. You know, It, it reminds me of the old mill horse that used to drag a millstone around in circles. And finally, he gets his freedom in his old age and he's still walking around in circles. <laughs> So what I'm doing gradually, I think, is trying to wean myself from this. I always want to have a hand in science because I do love science. Um, I can't do it anymore because, you know, I gave up my lab, although I can collaborate with people. But I want to at least write popular science. So there's two things I plan to do in my waning years, one of which is popular writing because that's a challenge that, to me, can never be fully met. You can, it's always, you can always do better. And, you know, that's something that will last a lifetime. Uh, the second thing is to travel. You know, I've traveled quite a bit in my life, but I've always been restricted, as we all are, by you know the fact that we have to do our jobs and stuff. Now I can do stuff like go to Antarctica, which has been one of my dreams, and see the penguins, or go to Australia or New Zealand or South Africa, places like that. So I plan to travel a lot. I don't want to be bound by the notion that I have to get stuff done. When I look back at my life, I think, okay, I've written three books, I've published a hundred. 20 papers, you know, I've taught a lot of students, my graduate students have done well. I can stop now, you know. I mean, I'm not worried about my legacy. As an atheist, I think, well, after you, why do you care what people think of you after you're dead? If you're, you know, <laughs> it's you're, narcissism, narcissism. I suppose it is, but when you, after you're dead, who, you know, you're not going to know. Right? Right. True. So the, the idea that the atheists think they're going to leave a legacy, I always found a bit contradictory. But, you know, what I want to do is really do stuff that I haven't done before so that when I come to my deathbed, I will not have any regrets. I think that's the life where I live, that when you're dying, you don't think. And people always say this, oh, God, I didn't work hard enough at my job. <laughs> Nobody thinks that. Right. They think I didn't spend time with my friends and my loved ones. I didn't see the world. I didn't have enough fun. And I want to avoid those kinds of regrets in the two decades or so I have left. Well, it has been an honor and a delight. Stay on the line. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for joining us, Jerry. We look forward to many more creations coming from you. A true honor to speak to you today. Cheers, buddy. Bye. Cheers.